You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 495 of this podcast. Today is Sunday. November 6, 2022, which means that I am 36 years plus one day as of today, yesterday being my birthday. We celebrated for the most part by putting our house back together as much as we could. My friend Luke Bergman volunteered, practically insisted on coming over and helping a little bit with bringing in boxes from the garage. My oldest son, Josiah, and I put a new toilet on the bathroom on the main floor. The former toilet was uh, not in the best of shape after I got a uh, drain snake stuck in it. And then we had to break it to get the drain snake out of not just the toilet, but also the bathroom. But Josiah and I also got the valve replaced in the tank for the toilet in Evelyn's bathroom. So that's also uh, a plus that came out of yesterday. We got the dining room table put back together. Lauren spent a lot of time getting all of the food cleaned out of the inside because it's one of those that it expands out and you can keep the extra leaves that you don't need at a given point inside. You can keep them stored away inside. And a lot, a lot of... uh, spilled food or ingredients when we're doing pizza night weekly. A lot of those ingredients get down into that part where you store the leaves and also into the tracks, more to the point where you're going to be doing that expanding and contracting of the table, depending on how much room you need, how many guests you're going to have. Uh, She got in there. She got that really well cleaned up. We got our new living room, which is where our former dining room was. Uh, Got that furnished and put together. We should have some wall mounts for our gaming systems, our Xbox and PlayStation 5 to go on the wall to get them up off the floor, out of the way, keep it from looking too cluttered in there. We'll get those put up today, I hope. But uh, also just trying to recover from being sick this past week and tired, and having our house in disarray. Uh, This weekend, I don't know that we're going to get 100% of what we would love to squared away. I think our garage is going to be just a disaster zone for a while, as we still have things out there that really can't be brought in for the time being. But we're going to see how much we can get accomplished before we get back into the work week and the school week this next week. I'm excited. We're excited. It is like a breath of fresh air to have clean floors and in good condition for a change. We've been here over three years, and the floors on the main floor have been in rough shape ever since. Actually, the floors on all three floors all throughout the house have been in rough shape. But the main floor especially is where you have guests come you know, into the house at first. If they don't go anywhere else in the house, they at least are going to come in on the main floor and get a certain impression of you. And we want to have a good impression, but you can only clean broken floors, worn out floors, stained floors so much. They only are going to look so good, however hard you try. And so at a certain point, you have to just tear the stuff out and put in fresh material. It has a shelf life. It has a active life, (laughs) uh, I guess I should say. These floors have not been on the shelf for quite a long time. I guess that's what I'm really trying to say probably been 20 years since they were on a shelf, but they've been in pretty heavy usage and uh, not just by us, also by everybody else who rented this house before we did. So it's good. It's good. We have replacement floors on the main floor now, fresh floors, new floors that, uh, you know, the color's not maybe what we would have ideally picked especially given the walls. The walls are all beige. The floors are a kind of beige as well. So 
they're too close, but not close enough all at the same time. Uh, and yet we can deal with that, with furnishing, with decoration, you know, pop of color here, pop of color there. They're clean. That's the main thing. They're clean floors. They're in good condition. They're not broken. They're not unsafe. So we're excited about that. But I am just coming off of a week of being sick, not sleeping well at all. Lauren and I, neither one of us, our house being all over the place. Uh, Strangers, yes, here to do good things, but strangers nevertheless in our house for three days this past week, the second week of my new job. It's been a lot. And so we're tired. And what we're hoping to do today is rest, get some things put into order so that we can be successful in the week ahead. Maybe it won't be 100%, but we'll make some progress. We've got some new shelves that are supposed to arrive, taller shelves to make more use of the limited floor space that we do have. Those will go in the front room where we had two shelves that we brought with us from Montana, but these will reach higher. They'll have about a third again as much storage for books and fabric and other things. And so that'll be really, really great. Once those are up, we're hoping we can unload a shelf that is in what will now be Lauren's sewing room and that thereby we can get that shelf out. That's another one that we moved here from Montana with, and it didn't really travel super well because it was all particle board. All of our furniture for the most part has been particle board for most of Lauren's and my marriage. And in more recent years, especially since we moved here, we have found we get a lot more longevity uh, out of shelves and furniture that is a combination of particle board with a veneer over it and a metal frame. So shelves that have that metal, that metal frame hold up better, and it's okay if they've got particle board as well, so long as that particle board is the cross pieces resting on a metal frame. So that's what we've got going in. Hopefully today we'll get those put together. But you could pray for us. We're still struggling a bit with sickness. We thought maybe, just maybe, everybody could be over it now. But then Evelyn was just really not feeling well yesterday. And then a couple others uh, just hit or miss. Andrew, our youngest, not feeling super well. Evelyn, really not feeling well. And it seems as though maybe we're passing it around uh you know, slowly but surely from Lauren and I to the kids or from the kids to one another, etc. So hopefully we get over that entirely shortly, putting our house back in order and being able to rest and relax will help in that regard. But I want to pick up again something that I was talking about in the last two episodes, which you can go back and check out if you haven't yet speaking to this question of Christian nationalism in particular, something I maybe didn't draw out as much as I want to in this episode has to do with more generally speaking, what sorts of countries, what sorts of nations or peoples does God bless? And does God bless everyone equally, evenly, to the same extent, all the time, in all the same ways, Is that something that we assume regardless of behavior, orientation, conduct? Is that our attitude that really almost doesn't matter what we do, God is going to bless America? Or (laughs) that it really doesn't matter what what we do at this point, God's not going to bless America. Like it's it's it. Our time has come and we are watching the end right now even if not everybody recognizes that this is the end. You know, what is our attitude and what should it be? I did an episode actually back in May and I had to do a a quick keyword search in my tracking spreadsheet that I've got for the podcast to find it and remember exactly when it was that I had recorded this episode. But I did an episode where I was talking about the prospect of Roe versus Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court. The draft memo with the majority decision to overturn Roe v. Wade had been leaked by activists, probably the staff of one of the leftist Supreme Court justices. That was leaked to the press 
and then subsequently a lot of threats of assassination, violence, torture, murder against the Supreme Court justices, against pro-life folk across the U.S., against churches, against Christians, followed over the next several weeks, actually really over the entire summer. And some among the more respectable, I guess you could say, establishment type American evangelicals said, this is not what we want, essentially. You know, this is more trouble than it's worth, or we shouldn't cheer, you know, if this happens, we shouldn't celebrate this, we shouldn't want this, because non-Christians are going to get the wrong idea, that we're just about politics, we're just about culture war. In fact, there was a piece in the Gospel Coalition, go figure, big surprise, huge shock, there was a piece that was published in the Gospel Coalition explicitly saying, hey, we need to do some soul searching if we want to celebrate and spike the football after Roe v. Wade being overturned. We need to be thinking about people who are hurting right now because they're scared about abortion, about not not being able to get an abortion legally anymore. We need to be compassionate towards those people and not be celebrating. That's very unchristlike. It's very selfish of us. That's not a very good testimony. And so I recorded this podcast episode, uh, not really <clears throat> in relation to that uh, in this specific case, although I did respond to that piece from the Gospel Coalition as well. When it was announced that Roe v. Wade might be overturned on May 2nd, I put out this piece, Overturning Roe v. Wade and Righteousness Exalting a Nation. And as memory would have it, uh, if if my memory serves, although I am getting older, I, I just turned 36, I think what I said back then is we might be the kind of country that God might bless, that could could be blessed by God, that we could ask expectantly for God to bless if Roe v. Wade were overturned, if abortion were outlawed here in the U.S. I think we could potentially see America being a country God could bless if that ended up happening. I'm not saying that that's all there is to it, but I am saying overturning Roe v. Wade is of a piece with having the kind of character which I believe God requires in a nation if he's going to bless it and not destroy it (laughs) and not judge it. But in this episode, I want to talk more specifically about this idea of God blessing earthly nations. And I'm not just talking Israel. It seems as though every time one wants to go there, in talking about God blessing nations, you will have those who are so heavenly minded that it's questionable what earthly good they intend to be of, making very similar claims to what Jonathan Lehman made in his Nine Marks piece against Christian nationalism, calling for a rejection of Christian nationalism. You will hear warnings about Old Covenant, New Covenant, keeping those straight, keeping those distinct. We are not Israel. America is not the new and better Israel, right? You will get reminded of those things. And it's a very knee-jerk way of discussing what I want to talk about. So please don't do that, right? Don't don't do the knee-jerk thing like you're at the doctor's office and I'm testing your reflexes with uh, a little rubberized hammer. No, no, no. Israel in the Old Testament was a nation that God made a nation, made his nation, his people. He called them his people. He said a people that was no people would be his people. Abraham and his wife had no children, and the promise was that God would make their offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the grains of sand on a seashore. So God blessed and he prospered Israel, not just as a fulfillment in and of itself of that promise, but also as a means to the end of fulfilling that promise. Israel was supposed to 
communicate to the nations something about God's goodness, even just by enjoying the blessings that God bestowed on Israel. Even in exile, read Jeremiah 29, even in exile, Israel was supposed to be testifying to the nations the goodness of God. Now, with the church, also a fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham to multiply Abraham's offspring, we see God speaking to the nations, communicating to the nations about himself. We have God's word. We have the testimony of the church. As Christians, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to instruct us, to convict us. And so we come to this question of a nation being blessed by God, and I can't accept a overly rosy view, which I grew up hearing. And I dare say, every time I heard the phrase, God bless America, through the early 2000s, let's say, after 9-11 especially, God bless America, God bless America, I cringed when I thought to myself, we don't know what we're praying for. We don't know what we're asking. Not when we're behaving the way that we are, not when we're embracing increasingly what we are, not when we allow what we allow and prohibit what we prohibit, not when we say the kinds of things that we say. I dare say, having grown up, come of age, in the early 2000s, having begun to raise my family towards the latter end of the early 2000s and then on through the 2010s, I am far more concerned about nominalism creeping into our Christian life and doctrine if we insist on the status quo as it has been. But I want not nominalism, not the status quo. I want this country that I'm a citizen of, that I was born in, that I'm raising my children in with my wife. I want this country to be blessed, not to be destroyed. And as such, I want to know, how do we get to a blessed state? If someone else says they don't want that, they don't want God to bless America, either A, they're thinking of the conditional if-then statements, which I'm also thinking of. That's why I'm podcasting, and that's why I've been writing since Obergefell v. Hodges. Either A, they're thinking of the if-then statements, or maybe, possibly, they've embraced this national self-loathing that is all too common in our day. I don't want America to be blessed. I want America punished. I want America destroyed, maybe they think to themselves. America's a bad country that's done bad things. I want God to punish it. I want him to destroy it. Let me ask you this. I want to ask this in good faith, and I don't necessarily have an answer, but I suspect an answer, at least. If Christian nationalism, so-called nationalism of any kind, being a lover of the nation that you are from, a citizen of, call home in an earthly sense, if that can potentially be a corrupting influence on your faith, if that can potentially get in the way of you understanding what God's purposes are for you, for the people around you, for people around the world, if you can get a bad attitude, actually, towards the things of God, which I'm not denying. I think that can happen. I think that does happen. I don't like, as a rule, when in our day claims of idolatry are thrown out very carelessly. I think idolatry is a more narrow problem than just anything you like or love or get obsessed with or preoccupied with is therefore an idol. I, I don't know that it works quite like that. But let's just say you can get a bad attitude. It can get in the way of you understanding, appreciating, obeying 
observing, remembering what God says. If you have an overly rosy view of your nation, let's say you're overly patriotic, perhaps, can yet also get in the way if you have an overly low view of your country, of your own country. Can that also get in the way if you have an antipathy towards your own country? Can that interfere with having a good attitude towards what God calls us to, what he commands, what he promises, what he has revealed his will to be? If you resent your own country, if you think ill of it, can that also interfere with faithfulness, obedience, fruitfulness? Can it interfere every bit as much as an overly rosy view of your own country might? You know, I think on two ends of a spectrum, if you will, exist the kind of wrong perspectives I'm talking about. Either everything my country does is right, and don't you dare criticize, don't you dare disagree, don't you dare dissent, or else... I'll call you a traitor. Or, on the other hand, my country can do no right. Everything it does, everything it's ever done, everything it ever will do, everything it's ever stood for is thoroughly and unusually and especially corrupt, contemptible, detestable. I hate it. Don't try to tell me that there's anything good that my country can do or has done or will do. I don't want to hear it. On the one hand, on the one end of the spectrum, what you will do potentially is abuse anyone who brings up valid concerns. For instance, things which your country is sinning in and which require repentance and restitution for, which require asking for God's forgiveness and grace and mercy for. If you have that kind of a bad attitude, you might abuse those who would bring a call to repentance that is needed. And I'm sorry to say, I think through the early 2000s, I saw that. I think among some who make up the Make America Great Again crowd, I have seen that. Everything that the U.S. has ever done or stood for or said or been about has been excellent, the best, hyperbolically great, until Obama, Clinton, Jimmy Carter, (laughs) LBJ. No, no, that's not reasonable. On the other end of the spectrum, you have, I would say, people in the Howard Zinn, 1619 Project, Barack Obama, frame of mind, for whom the words of Reverend Jeremiah Wright, no, 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 not God bless America, God damn America, are accurate summations. You can't tell them anything happy, anything positive about the United States because all is a front for oppression. There's a Marxist narrative that they're stuck on, that they're addicted to. All they can see, all they can think of is dividing us all into oppressors and oppressed, victims and victimizers, haves and have-nots. The only way they can conceive of making the world right again is to destroy America as it has been. And first, the way they do that is by destroying our love for our country. I know this is unpopular with a lot of my generation. I know this is unpopular with the generations that are coming up through the public education system who are being daily brainwashed by pop culture and the media. But I say it is good for me to love my country. And it is good for me to call my country to repentance when my country is being wicked. Both of those things are true at the same time. Both of those things are good at the same time. 
Both of those things, if we embrace them at the same time, allow us to have a beautiful relationship towards our civic duties and towards our Christian testimony and witness. Consider, if you will, Second Chronicles 7, 11 through 22. Thus Solomon finished the house of Yahweh and the king's house, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of Yahweh and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then Yahweh appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time." And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you, and this house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has Yahweh done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned Yahweh the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Now, a couple of things to note, which the discerning listener who disagrees with my bringing this passage up at this juncture, no doubt, wants to call me up right now and tell me, you and I are not Solomon. That temple was destroyed. We are not Israel. This is the Old Testament. Okay, God is still God. That's my point. That's why this is still worth reading, by the way, that God is still God. Who's the main character of the Bible? God. So I bring this up because God is still God. His character has not changed. And you could say, ah, yes, his character has not changed, but he was trying to communicate something about his character in a particular instance, with regards to the Old Covenant and Israel, that doesn't translate to our day with the New Covenant. Now, we are just waiting for the Second Coming. This earth isn't our home, so we don't get involved in civilian affairs, so we don't concern ourselves at all with the nation or the nations, except for making disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded us. That's what we do. That's all we do. Otherwise, the nations are going to burn the sooner the better. And if that's your attitude and you're an American, well, for one, I would ask you, is that your attitude in any measure because it's become so fashionable to hate our own country as Americans? I'm not talking call to repentance. In fact, I'm talking a hatred that has more in common with Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, being sent to Nineveh, where he didn't want to go to preach repentance, that he didn't want to preach to a people he didn't want to see repent. No, no, I'm talking about hating your own country and your own countrymen and wanting them to die, wanting them to perish, not warning them, wanting them to be destroyed because they have it coming. And because you've been taught to hate them and to hate your own country. And that is, if we don't repent, that is the only way that we would be destroyed, short of a natural disaster. I suppose 
thermonuclear war could do it. A well-placed strike on Yellowstone's supervolcano, but then the whole world is in a bad way. So I don't see that happening necessarily. But even there, even at the risk of thermonuclear war, ours is the first option to put ourselves in a predicament whereby some other country wants thermonuclear war with us. And what I mean is infighting, destroying ourselves, making ourselves weak and vulnerable and corrupt. We destroy ourselves first. And I think that is happening. I think that's in process. I think that's part of what we see with wokeism being pushed on the kids in our public schools, pushed to Americans of all ages through the news media, through ESG investing. I do think that's what we're seeing when Supreme Court justices and their families or political candidates, Republican candidates for governor or senator or what have you are threatened or their families are threatened. I do think this is what we see with the vaccine mandate that makes zero objective sense anymore. If it ever did make some sense at the outset, it doesn't make any sense now, but it's an ideological purge of our armed forces, which are not ready. They are not ready to fight a conventional war with even one power, much less two, much less three or four. So we destroy ourselves first, and then someone else or a coalition of others will finish the job, put us out of our misery. If God is still God, and he said to Solomon in Second Chronicles 7, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. Maybe we are not his people as Americans in the same way that Israel was his people. Yet he is God, and if he turned his wrath from Nineveh when Nineveh repented, if he promised to turn his wrath away from his own people, if they would humble themselves, if they would pray and seek his face, if they would turn from their wicked ways, if he promised to forgive them and to heal their land, we do well to take note. And if we don't want that, if we don't want that outcome, if we don't want God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, if we don't want national repentance, we do well to do some soul searching as to why that might be. Why wouldn't we want that? Is that of the Lord that we wouldn't want that? An interesting thing, I was looking up symbolism of, for one, the so-called Christian flag, which has been in a lot of churches that I grew up going to, a lot of Baptist churches. It's been a feature everywhere we've been that had Awana. There's always been a Christian flag and a U.S. flag. But I was looking it up and I was just curious because I was trying to put some featured images in the posts to WordPress for my last episode or the one before that. And I decided to include an image of the Christian flag. And then I got to thinking, I wonder, where did this Christian flag come from? And how long has it been around? And who all accepts it? And apparently, through missionary work, Christians all over the world now fly the Christian flag. But there's a piece at the Gospel Coalition from a Joe Carter, who's an associate pastor at McLean Bible Church, by the way, in... Arlington. You may be familiar with that church from David Platt, who is one of the lead pastors there. More on that in a minute. Joe Carter published this piece last September, Nine Things You Should Know About the Christian Flag. Point number one, he says the idea for the flag originated in an impromptu Sunday school speech. Charles C. Overton The superintendent of the Sunday school at Brighton Chapel on Coney Island in New York had designated an event called Rally Day for Sunday, September 26, 1897. When the guest speaker didn't show, Overton gave an impromptu speech using the U.S. flag that draped the podium for his object lesson. After talking about the symbolism of the American flag, he proposed a flag that should represent the Christian church. With the help of a local seamstress, Overton created the flag he had described and presented the first copy the next Sunday. So that's where it comes from. 
It's 125 years old at this point. This piece being published on the 124th anniversary of the conceiving of this flag. Point number two in Joe Carter's piece, the colors match the American flag, but are symbolically Christian. The colors on the flag match those on the American flag, red, white, and blue. But on the Christian flag, white represents purity and peace. Blue indicates fidelity. And red stands for the shed blood of Christ. Now, interestingly, on this point, I was curious because I had heard before with regards to the colors of the U.S. flag that those might just be the symbolic reasoning behind why the U.S. flag is red, white, and blue as well. I looked it up. Wikipedia had this to say for what it's worth. Under the article Flag of the United States, the section Color Symbolism, when the flag was officially adopted in 1777, the colors of red, white, and blue were not given an official meaning. However, when Charles Thompson, Secretary of the Continental Congress, presented a proposed U.S. seal in 1782, he explained its center section in this way. The colors of the pales are those used in the flag of the United States of America. White signifies purity and innocence, red, hardiness and valor, and blue, the color of the chief, signifies vigilance, perseverance, and justice. These meanings have broadly been accepted as official, with some variation. In 1986, President Ronald Reagan gave his own interpretation, saying, the colors of our flag signify the qualities of the human spirit we Americans cherish. Red for courage and readiness to sacrifice, white for pure intentions and high ideals, and blue for vigilance and justice. So, not quite 100% the same thing as what the symbolism of the Christian flag is said to be, but very close, actually. Joe Carter says, White on the Christian flag represents purity and peace. According to Charles Thompson, Secretary of the Continental Congress, white signified purity and innocence. Ronald Reagan, in 1986, the year I was born, said that white stood for pure intentions and high ideals. These are very similar adjacent sayings, highly compatible. Purity and peace, pure intentions and high ideals, purity and innocence. Red for the shed blood of Christ. Yes, yes indeed, in the Christian flag. Red, according to Charles Thompson, hardiness and valor. Or, according to Ronald Reagan, courage and readiness to sacrifice. Is this an effort at secularizing what the reasons were more originally? Blue, the color of the chief, signifies vigilance, perseverance, and justice, according to Charles Thompson. Blue, according to Ronald Reagan, signified vigilance and justice. Blue, according to the Christian flag symbolism, indicating fidelity, faithfulness. You might say faithfulness and fidelity are very closely related to vigilance, perseverance, justice. If we say, ah, yes, but, but I won't be content either to take at their word, Ronald Reagan or Charles Thompson, that this was justice for all intended, courage to do what is right, really pure intentions and high ideals instead of white supremacy. In our day, it's much more common the way people carry on to suppose that white stands for white supremacy. Blue stands for blue bloods, those who are wealthy by birth, multi-generationally, passing down their fortunes one to another to another. Red signifying all of the blood of people of color and minorities shed so that straight white Christian men could take their property and their land and their opportunity. Again, it can be a distortion and blinding attitude 
to suppose that America has never done any wrong, can do no wrong, will always be blessed, no matter what, unconditionally. It might be as bad or worse to suppose America has never done anything right, never does anything right now, never will be able to do anything right or enjoy God's blessing. But it is true that we are in a bad spot. As I mentioned in our last episode, it seems like the only commercials playing on Amazon Prime and Hulu right now, if they're not for other shows available on those platforms, they are for HIV meds, contraceptives, and heart conditions. I don't know if it's just us, if it's just my household, if you are experiencing the same thing, if you're watching anything over these streaming platforms, but it's all STDs, contraceptives, and heart disease. I think, if I may, it's chronic stress and the COVID vaccine and the sexual revolution. I think if you look at what is being advertised, the way that it's being advertised, it's all feelings-based. You know, my son, my oldest son, as we were watching some little house on the prairie as a family in our new living room, newly transported living room, he asked at a certain point what... Uh, maybe there were, there actually was. I think there actually was a Geico commercial with the talking gecko. So it wasn't all STDs, contraceptives, and heart disease. There was also car insurance. But the Geico gecko rings the doorbell on his neighbor's house and has this tiny little plate of cookies or muffins or something like that. He's just baked that are his grandmother's recipe. And the neighbor, white guy, unkempt, rude, pot-bellied, messy hair, messy beard, unceremoniously takes the plate from the Geico gecko, dumps it into his face, eats it ungratefully, demands the recipe. You can't have the recipe. It's my grandmother's recipe. It's a secret recipe. Yeah, but what is it? No, it's a secret. Yeah, but what is it? I'm not going to tell you. And then the guy goes in, doesn't even give the plate back, just walks away rudely. My oldest son, Josiah, turns to me and he asks, what does that have to do with car insurance? (laughs) And I said, quite frankly, nothing, nothing whatsoever, except for the past hundred years since Edward Bernays and propaganda and the father of public relations as a science, modern advertising as a trade, the tactic is to create an emotion in your would-be consumers. Create an emotion about what you don't want them to buy, your competitor's product, what you don't want them to subscribe to, your competitor's service, who you don't want them to vote for, your political opponent. Create a whole other set of emotions that they do want to feel about your product, your service, your candidacy. Associate in your advertising and your messaging in very subtle ways through imaging, through dialogue, through non sequiturs, camera angles, casting decisions, music, lighting, color, everything. Create a whole set of emotions that your intended intended audience will then associate with what you don't want them to do. Create the negative emotions, operant conditioning. Create a whole other set of emotions that your audience, your intended targets do want to feel and associate those with what you do want them to do. Get them to feel so that they do or don't do what you want them to do and what you don't want them to do. We've got to repent of that. We've got to call for repentance of that, but we we need to repent of that. It's wicked. It's manipulative. It's deceitful. It's evil. It's dishonest. Speaking of, Trump recently came up with a nickname for Florida's governor, Republican Ron DeSantis, who I like very much, by the way, he called him Ron DeSanctimonious. I was just reading a piece over at the Daily Wire highlighting a great many conservative responses to this. And universally, it's being denounced as bad form, unwelcome, ugly. Let me just say, I will not be sad if Trump calls it a day and just doesn't run in 2024. I think he will. I don't think he can help himself, but that's just it. That's exactly the reason why he should, is that he can't. More's the pity. 
Because that's half the reason why we're in the predicament that we are in. It's not just that Joe Biden and the Democrats are so awful. It's also that Trump lacked so much in self-control. He does not know when to stop. Or if he does, he doesn't care. He wants to carry on anyways. But if you ask me for exactly the same reason, and given everything I've heard and seen so far from Ron DeSantis, it would do America a lot of good for Ron DeSantis to be the next president of the United States. There could be more that I don't know. Sure, you might cynically say all politicians are the same. It doesn't matter. I reject that. I've noted it, but I reject it. You might as well go to the grocery store and say there's nothing to eat because you keep trying to find gluten-free ingredients and everything's got gluten or you've got a nut allergy and you keep finding that everything's been prepared in a facility that also handles tree nuts or you're allergic to dairy and everything seems to have milk in it. You know, those are very frustrating and real scenarios. My wife and my daughter have to contend with. Increasingly, we're thinking she's got the same food sensitivities that my wife has, which is sad, but also not the end of the world because we didn't just say, ah, okay, well, you're going to feel sick all the time because everything you want to eat has this stuff that you're allergic to. You're going to have a reaction to, no, no. What you do is you do the research and you figure it out. You say, okay, so-and-so makes this substitute, which I can get, or I can just eat these other foods. And then lo and behold, you're fine. Is it still sad? Yeah. Is it a bummer? Yeah. Is it less of a bummer if you're not fatalistic, if you don't exaggerate hyperbolically? Uh, Yeah. Also, yes. It's like when my kids tell me they're bored. What will a child tell you when they're bored? They will say, and I quote, I have nothing to do. And then Ironically, as an aside, if I suddenly come up with a bunch of chores for them to do, they find other things to do. It's, it's crazy. It's magic. <laughs> they suddenly have a much better imagination for what else they could be doing. Or they will say, there's nothing to eat. And I'll list off several things. Like, well, you could eat this. You could eat these leftovers. You could eat. Yeah, but I don't want to eat that. Okay, well, but there is something for you to eat. You just don't like the taste of it. So also, I would say, with regards to our political options, the cure for what ails us is ultimately God's grace. But specifically, where the rubber meets the road, I think God's grace could take the form of repenting of our sins, turning away from the things that we are doing that are destroying us and one another. The things that are making it appealing and profitable for pharmaceutical companies to try and sell us drugs for HIV and not getting pregnant and uh, heart disease. By the way, too, another aside regarding children, how exactly does it work if your HIV meds and your contraceptives translate into you having no children when the heart disease really kicks in? Maybe we'll have caretaking robots that will pick up after you and cook your food and help you run errands and help you do things around the house. But in my case, I don't need STD meds. We definitely have not used contraceptives. (laughs) And if, if I end up having heart disease, my wife and I have seven sons and a daughter By God's grace, we hope and pray, will treat kindly with us in our old age or if we no longer are able to take care of ourselves at a certain point. Is that also a kind of judgment on us that we have a demographic implosion to look forward to on a society level, on a national level? Is that a kind of judgment? Yes. Is the reverse scenario Part of what is meant when we read that children are a heritage from Yahweh, blessed is the man who 
fills his quiver with those arrows in the hands of a warrior, the children of his youth, that he won't be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate? I think so. I think part of the blessing there is when you're old or not feeling so well, or you've been sick all week, maybe your sons help you put the house back together and carry furniture and carry boxes in and put a toilet back on and change the valve on another toilet. Maybe, just maybe. When you're old and tired, your kids then are able to take you in. When your house gets destroyed by a hurricane, maybe. That's also part of what it means that there's a blessing there for those who have children in their youth. Just saying. A quick word about trying to box your political opponents in with pejoratives, by the way. Something we should learn from. I think there are some positive things we can learn from former President Trump. And if he is president again, it won't be the worst thing ever. It certainly would be preferable to having Joe Biden as president the way that we do right now. A lot of the major catastrophic problems we've been having under Biden, I don't remember us having when Trump was in office. But calling people and things by their name is one thing. And I'm actually convinced that some of the flack, a good bit of the flack Trump has gotten from the establishment has to do with him actually calling people and things by their right name. When the establishment of both parties have had a gentleman's agreement for decades that you don't do that. It's bad for business. It's bad for their business. It's actually in the national self-interest but it's against the personal self-interest of the status quo establishment types of both Republican and Democratic parties. But again, calling people and things by their right name is one thing. Assassinating someone's character with falsehoods and slander, calling them by the wrong name, that's quite another. At the same time, too, when you're not sure which it would be, especially, an untoward thing can be suspected of others and still a greater benefit and virtue can be found in not calling them that ugly thing. You might suspect that they are. You might even know. It doesn't always mean you have to say it. It doesn't always mean you've got to call them that. Sometimes you must, to be accurate, but not always. And in the case of Trump calling Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSanctimonious, for one, it's lame. I saw one of the comments. One of the tweets that was highlighted on the Daily Wire article about this, report about this, likened Trump's comment, his moniker, which he's famous for handing out and dishing out to his political opponents and allies alike. Where'd you get your clothes from? The toilet store? That's the kind of vibe Trump's name for Ron DeSantis has. It's a little bit desperate. It's a weak look, actually for Trump because Ron DeSantis is looking really, really strong. And this just seems petty and it seems insecure on Trump's part. So don't do that, right? Do call things by their right name. But that means both that if the name is an ugly name, you might use it. And also if the name is not an ugly name, you don't give it an ugly name. I think this is of a piece with how best to relate to patriotism and calls to repentance. I dare say the most patriotic should be calling America to repentance right now and hoping that there will be repentance and a turning away from sin. Consider also Proverbs 14. I talked through Proverbs 14 in the May 2nd episode about overturning Roe v. Wade. You're probably familiar with verse 34 in particular, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Have you read the entirety of this proverb recently? I'll read it for you if you haven't, or if you have, either way. The wisest of women, verse one starts off, builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Whoever walks in uprightness fears Yahweh, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. 
By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, (laughs) but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil bow down before the good, the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Do they not go astray who devise evil? Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. In all toil there is a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. In the fear of Yahweh, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people a prince is ruined. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. Now, why do I read that whole chapter? All of Proverbs 14. Only this. It is interesting. No, it is instructive to see what Verse 34 is beside in the way of Proverbs. There are so many gems here. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Boy, isn't that the truth with regards to our country. The wisest of women builds her house. That is to say, it is wise to build your house. When you're tearing down the house that you live in, It's stupid. It's stupid, plain and simple. But what actually tears your house down? What builds your house up? Well, according to Proverbs 14, according to God, what builds a nation up 
what builds your house up, what builds your reputation up, what builds your life up is righteousness, is godliness, is wisdom, is being content with what you have, utilizing it, being a good steward of it, putting it to a productive end. Let's say you're rich and you feel bad about it. You feel guilty about it. You then decide we should all feel bad about being Americans because you're rich and being an American made it possible for you to get rich. I got a better idea. How about go find some poor people and be generous? Maybe that's a better thing to do with the wealth that God's blessed you with than just beating up on your house. Folly with their own hands tears it down. Do you want to be wise or do you want to be foolish? I think you should want to be wise. Stop being foolish. Also, an interesting thing here, and this is a very, very clever word picture that translates into many, many things. Important to remember is verse 4. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. (laughs) You could also say, where there are no children, the house is clean. You could also say, (laughs) where there are no employees, the business is clean. Where there are no politicians, the government is clean. What's not being said is that we shouldn't clean mangers or houses or businesses or our government up. All of them get dirty. All of them need washed out, cleaned, changed frequently. As the saying goes, which is challenged for whether Mark Twain ever said it, politicians are like diapers. They need to be changed often for the same reasons. It doesn't matter whether Mark Twain said it. It's funny. Nevertheless, (laughs) where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. You want a clean manger? Perfectly clean? I guess get rid of the oxen. But remember, what was the point of having the manger in the first place? So you could take care of oxen. Don't forget that. The point of the manger is not to have a clean manger. Even having a clean manger should be to the end of taking care of the oxen or the people that are nearby. You have the oxen here providing their strength so that you can grow abundant crops. Well, what's the point of having abundant crops? So you can feed yourself and your wife and your children and your poor neighbor. (laughs) Even in laughter, the heart may ache. So also there. See, wisdom... Wisdom is better than folly. Don't just read the parts of Ecclesiastes where Solomon notes that the same event happens to them both. No, no. Read all the way to the end and read the rest of the book. Wisdom is better than folly because God is pleased when we ask him for wisdom. He gives generously to all without finding fault. If any of you lacks wisdom, what? Like that's a good thing, James? Yes, just so. Wisdom is better than folly. Righteousness is better than wickedness and sin. Righteousness exalts a nation, as if that's a good thing, as if you would want your nation to be lifted up. You know, I looked it up, by the way, in case someone might say, uh, a nation, who's this talking about? This could only be talking about Israel. We're not Israel, so what's this to us? It couldn't possibly apply to us. Righteousness in the Hebrew, is sedeka, justice, righteousness. This is righteousness in government of a judge, ruler, king, law, or of the Davidic king, Messiah. This is righteousness of God's attributes in a case or a cause regarding truthfulness. As far as ethics goes, being ethically right, righteousness as in being vindicated or justified or saved by God or the prosperity of a people, or this is talking about righteous acts. All of the above, all of that is baked into this passage here when it talks about righteousness exalting a nation. All of that exalts a nation, all of it, any and all of it, found in 150 verses, according to my little literal word app here. Exalts. What's this word exalts about? 
Rum, to rise, rise up, to be high, to be lofty, to be exalted, to be lifted up. What's this word nation? Interestingly, interestingly, this word nation in Proverbs 14.34 is goi. Curious, very curious. Goi, nation, people. Usually of non-Hebrew people although it could also be descriptive of descendants of Abraham. It could also describe Israel. Another definition of goy found in 509 verses is a swarm of locusts or other animals. It's figurative language. Another definition here for this noun, goy. This one, very amusing, with a question mark. Goyim? Nations? Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin, hatat, is a disgrace, hased, reproach, a shame to any people, any people. That includes ours. Any people. We should remember how to blush again. We should remember how to turn away from our sins again. We should pray that righteousness would exalt our nation again. That's my prayer. I'm not giving up on that. You could be cynical if you want to. I'm not going to give up on it. Maybe, just maybe, we call our countrymen to repentance. We call our country to repentance. And maybe we pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways. Maybe if we do that, he will hear from heaven and heal our land. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. Let me know what you think. If you have any pushback, if I'm missing something. I don't think I am, but I've got more to learn for sure. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.